Welcome to the Public Morality. For 50 years, Roe versus Wade constitutionally protected a woman's right to choose an abortion. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe and Dobbs versus Jackson in 2022, a political firestorm has been created mobilizing voters to support abortion rights every time it has appeared on the ballot, even in traditional red states such as Kansas, Kentucky, and most recently Ohio. Has overturning Roe become the proverbial third rail of politics? And what does it portend for the 2024 election? Joining me to discuss abortion rights in a post-Roe world, we welcome back to the public morality, Professor Kerry Baker. Professor Baker is Professor of Women and Gender Studies at Smith College. Professor Kerry Baker, welcome back to the public morality. Great to be here. When you were last on, we, we discussed what a post-Roe v. Wade world might look like. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe, do we have enough data now to suggest that um, a narrative has been created uh, for the post-Roe world, and what might that narrative be in your view? Well, I will say that I think that uh, sort of in public discourse, the narrative is still very confused and there's a lot going on. But I can tell you what I I think is happening, uh, which is based on a lot of research and speaking to people on the ground and watching legal developments. What I can say is, is that you know, a few things. One, the harms of Roe are falling most heavily on people who are carrying pregnancies to term, people that have wanted pregnancies and often, you know, because of things like an ectopic pregnancy or a complication later in pregnancy, need access to abortion, need to be able to end the pregnancy because the pregnancy threatens their lives or their health. And so we have seen a lot of evidence that women are suffering. Women that have wanted pregnancies are ending up not being able to access the care they need, sometimes waiting in hospital parking lots until they're bleeding enough or have enough of a fever to go back in and credibly be able to say my life is being threatened. And, you know, this is appearing in a number of ways. Certainly it's in media stories, but it's also appearing in a lawsuit in Texas where eight women have sued the state of Texas because their medical exception is very vague and doctors are not willing to provide life-saving medical care to patients until literally the patients are about to die. And as a result, the patients often end up infertile, they lose their reproductive capacity or other negative things. But the really surprising thing is the Society for Family Planning, which documents the number of abortions that happen each year, released a report recently showing that the number of abortions has increased in the year after Dobbs. Now, the distribution is very uneven. In the 14 states that have banned abortion, it's dropped to zero as far as, you know, the medical system providing abortion. But in states where abortion is legal, those legislators have strengthened access. And as a result, rates of abortion have gone way up. And certainly that's 
largely in part due to people traveling from states with bans to states that have legal abortion, but it's also just generally increased access to abortion to people that live in states that allow abortion. Now, these numbers, while they're striking, so so I'll just reiterate, there are there were 2,200 more abortions the year after Dobbs than the year before a Dobbs in the United States. But those numbers are only counting abortion through the medical system, meaning abortions done by doctors or nurses in medical facilities. There's a lot of evidence that people are accessing abortion pills outside of the medical system in very large numbers. And that yet has not been counted, although there are folks working on that. But tens of thousands, potentially as many as 100,000 people have been accessing abortion pills outside of the medical system. And so I think that's a really important part of the story that's often underreported. And the fact of the matter is abortion pills are safer than Tylenol, very easy to access online and very easy to use. And so Largely, this is going under the radar screen. People are not being tracked. People are not, um, you know, showing up at emergency rooms because it's just so safe to use those pills. So I guess that would be the upshot. I mean, certainly the threat of criminalization hangs over the underground abortion pill movement all the time. But there hasn't been a lot of reports of people being criminalized for ordering pills online and using them except in a couple cases involving people that used it very late in pregnancy. But generally, you know, again, tens of thousands of people are using these pills um, and safely. And um, and I think it's really shifting the narrative on abortion. You know, the anti-abortion movement has been very successful in painting abortion as dangerous, as difficult, as, you know, heart-wrenching. And I think that as women are finding that they can just order these pills online and use them, that it's not difficult, that it's quite safe, that it's within their control. They don't have to go to doctors and ask for permission. They don't have to go through waiting periods and pay $700, which what is what it costs on average to get an in-clinic medication abortion in this country, that they can in fact spend you know $35 and get pills through the mail. Or if they're using some of the underground networks that mail pills for free, that they can just have them on hand in their medicine cabinet in case they use them. So I, I guess that would be my summary as to what I, and I don't want to underestimate the le- the excruciating legal situation that we're in. And, you know, many attorneys are challenging these abortion bans and many people are frightened by them. But I guess I, you know, just stepping back and thinking about it historically and like, I see this moment as a real turning point. I think that COVID and Dobbs have, in essence, freed abortion pills from medical and legal gatekeeping that has been going on for decades and that is not scientifically based and is, uh, you know, sort of driven by extreme anti-abortion politicians. And that, you know, like the rest of the world where abortion is illegal, people access abortion pills. And we are learning here in the United States from activists in Latin America and from across the globe who have been doing this for years, doing it safely. And, um, you know, so I think that it's been interesting, not surprising to me, but I think it would be surprising to a lot of people what's happened. 
Furthering, furthering down that line, if, if we're honest, though, are, are we not, isn't so much of the abortion debate really a pernicious attack on potentially on low income women? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's an attack on democracy, by the way, I would say, because the same states banning abortion are also banning access to the ballot. They're gerrymandering. But but and I think it's all about attacking. Well, let me rephrase it another way. I think it's all about. White supremacy and in particular, white male supremacy, I think it's it's people who have traditionally had power, who are white men, who are uncomfortable with growing diversity in American society and growing power of women. And so when they chant, you will not replace us, and they circulate the great replacement theory, right? The idea that people of color are going to take over the United States and white people will lose power. I think abortion has a lot to do with that. And I think um, coercing white women to have children and then disenfranchising people of color is the formula that is uh, fueling this. Now, your question, I think, probably was narrower. I kind of went into a broad direction. But um, yes, disproportionately, people who suffer from abortion pans are low-income people, right? In part, it is because low-income people disproportionately have unwanted pregnancies because they don't have access to reproductive health care and contraception. And so when you ban abortion, those are the folks that are most harmed. And those are the folks that can't travel out of state to a state like Massachusetts, which has legal abortion, right? 56% of people who seek abortion already have children to have to get childcare, to have to travel, you know, hundreds of miles, potentially a thousand miles to get to an abortion clinic. Uh, this obviously disproportionately burdens low-income people. Now, this underground abortion network is designed to help those people in particular because, and and I'll just say, half of people in this country who get abortion are live in poverty. Seventy-five percent are low, des, described as low income, which means two hundred percent of the poverty level. So, going directly to your question with regard to abortion, yes, low-income people are disproportionately harmed and impacted by abortion bans. This system of underground, you know, access to abortion pills is targeted towards people that can't travel or people that can't afford abortion. Now, of course, those same low-income people are the people disproportionately surveilled by the criminal justice system or injustice system, as you maybe want to call it. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's a problem, but I think that this system is very good so far at evading detection. But I, I, you know, of course the anti-abortion movement is very aware of all of this and they are trying to design ways of, um, finding, um, you know, finding people who are doing this. I will say though, one thing that I worried a lot about was that states would ban self-managed abortion. In other words, ban people ordering pills and using them. And only two states so far have done that. And they've done that long before Dobbs. And I think in part, it's because it's, it's very politically unpopular. And the few legislators across the country that have suggested, oh, we're going to start criminalizing women that, you know, have abortions and access pills. 
Um, it's really not gone anywhere politically, which surprises me in, in, in a way. But I think that, um, you know, most of these abortion bans are not directed at the people that have abortions. They're directed at doctors. So they're blocking doctors from providing that care. But they're also... Um, to some degree, targeting people that help women get abortions. That's like the, you know, Idaho's abortion trafficking ban, which prohibits people from driving um, people out of state to get abortion. But sorry, I keep on going on. <laughs> no, it, 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 it is a, an engaging topic. That's so why I'm glad that you are going on because it, it, it's um, there, it's not a linear discussion in, in any means. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the common arguments uh, in 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 the battle to overturn Roe, and you hear you hear people uh, saying this now, is that it represented a judicial overreach, and so they weren't necessarily uh, against abortion, but they thought the states should have a voice, yeah. um, should be looking to the states. Now, I, I guess what that raises for me is how do you define states, because if you define states by the state legislature, we have gotten traditionally in the states that ban abortion, we've gotten one outcome, particularly in red states. But if states are defined by the people, the trend has revealed a different outcome. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's it's fascinating. I mean, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of Americans support access to abortion. And states that have these very gerrymandered legislatures that have passed these very extreme abortion bans are now being challenged through ballot referendum. And we've seen this in quite a number of states. The first state was Kansas, which there was a ballot measure to try to empower the legislature to restrict abortion because the Supreme Court had said abortion was protected. The, the Kansas Supreme Court had said the Kansas Constitution protects access to abortion. Well, so that was on the ballot in August of 2020, uh, let's see, August of 2022, right after Dobbs. And overwhelmingly, the people of Kansas rejected that ballot initiative, that referendum. And then in November of 2022, the, the abortion was on the ballot in five states. And in all five of those states, voters chose abortion rights. Three of those ballots were putting abortion rights in the Constitution. That was in Vermont, California, and Michigan. And in two states, these were anti-abortion states, the measures were to try to restrict abortion. The um, voters rejected those measures. That was in, um, oh, let's see, that was in uh, Kentucky and Montana, very red states. And then just this earlier this month in Ohio, there was a ballot measure, a referendum to amend the Ohio Constitution to protect abortion rights, kind of along the lines of Roe. And by a vote of 57 to 43 percent, the people of Ohio um, amended their constitution, voted in favor of that initiative. And the Ohio legislature had banned abortion at six weeks. So you're absolutely right that that democracy, if we were a truly a democratic country and if states were truly democratic, if legislatures weren't choosing their voters rather than voters choosing their legislatures, then we would have legal abortion in most states. But we know, right, through gerrymandering and voter suppression, that many people don't, we don't have democracy in many states. And I think 
Abortion is just one of the issues where this is reflected. I think gun control is another issue. The vast majority of Americans support gun control. They support voting rights. Yet states are passing all sorts of laws, um, you know, or not passing laws on gun control or passing laws restricting voting. So it's very disturbing. I think that's why I linked abortion earlier to democracy. I think that, you know, it's it's a symptom of our failing democracy that we have these laws that, that state legislatures are passing that are so deeply unpopular. And, you know, the problem is only about 16 states have these procedures where citizens can put ballot measures up for a vote. In other words, what's happened in states like Michigan and Ohio is that individuals in the state collect thousands of signatures. In Michigan, I think it was over 700,000 signatures. And in order to put an initiative on the ballot, and you know, in Ohio, the people in power didn't like that, and they tried their best to try to defeat a democratic ballot initiative. They had, they sort of at the last minute put a measure out to vote in August saying, oh, rather than 50% to pass a ballot initiative, you need 60%. And luckily, you know, advocates got the word out that this was about defeating the abortion referendum, which was set to go in November, and they defeated that measure. But the powers that be in Ohio still didn't give up. Right before the election, the Secretary of State, who is an anti-abortion uh, person, purged 26,000 people's off off the voter rolls without giving them time to correct their ballots. Um, the Secretary of State also, rather than putting the language of the amendment on the ballot, he basically gave an anti-abortion description of the amendment, which was inaccurate on the ballot. Um, abortion rights groups challenged that and the you know, conservative Ohio Supreme Court turned down their challenge. And so the initiative had all sorts of anti-abortion language in it, but it still passed. And, and there was also, you know, sort of a multi-million dollar misin misinformation or disinformation campaign to try to convince voters in Ohio that the measure would do things that it wouldn't do. So, you know, there's a lot of dirty tactics going on, um, which I think is also, I mean, I guess politics always has dirty play, but it, it seems like it's really accelerated around, you know, democracy. I mean, the 2020 elections is an example, the attempt to overturn the 2020 elections. That's not business as usual. That's not politics as usual. That's downright illegal behavior to support fascism. And so I really worry. I really think that abortion was the canary in the mine. It always was. I mean, these kinds of anti-democratic practices have been going on with abortion for a long time. Um, but I think that now it's really spread across our politics in really harmful ways. And we're going to um, expand on some of those tentacles in just a second. You know, I guess I was wondering, listen to your last answer. You know, when, when, when those who advocate, well, all, all I really wanted was for the state to decide to to uh, get around the judicial overreach by the Supreme Court. Um, it seems to omit the fact that American democracy was really not designed, in this case, to have, say, 50 standards of privacy. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the, the 14th Amendment protects liberty. And liberty includes not having the government rifle through your underwear drawer. It, it includes some privacy. And that should be a right 
of national citizenship, a right that every citizen has. And it shouldn't be, you know, individual states shouldn't be able to violate that. The 14th Amendment applies to the states. You know, the people, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and his concurrence in Dobbs said, oh, we're just going to throw it back to the states. They're the ones that should be legislating. And we really want to be done with this abortion issue, which was kind of a joke if he really thought doing overturning Roe was going to create an end to the abortion issue. No, not at all. But almost immediately, um, the anti-abortion movement and many Republicans began to say, oh, we want to ban abortion nationwide. Um, and, and you know, through Congress, they introduced at first a 15 week ban. And some of these candidates for the Republican nomination are saying we need a, a complete ban nationwide. So I, I never believed that they actually wanted states to regulate abortion. They want abortion banned. And so I think that's an important clarification. But I also would agree with your point was is that there are so th some things that are so fundamental to human rights and to our rights as American citizens that states should not be able to infringe them. And mm -hmm. I think that's the point of the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court, in, in essence, um, abdicated their role as the protector of individual rights from state interference by overturning Roe and setting a precedent that we are now seeing really wreak havoc in other areas like gun control, where, you know, they said, you know, in Roe, what they in essence said, if the law didn't exist in 1787, it shouldn't exist now. And so people have gone and said, oh, gun control. Well, in, you know, 1787, there, you know, there were limited gun laws and therefore there should be limited gun laws now or no gun laws. And and I'm not an expert in in the Second Amendment or gun laws. So but I, but my point is, is that if if our if our rule to decide what our rights are is what our rights are were in 1787, most of the population is in real trouble. Right. Because we know that in 1787, the only people that really had rights were white propertied men yeah. who were born, you know, or, or naturalized in the United States. They were not enslaved people. They were not women. They were not immigrants. And, you know, if you look at today's population, basically what the Supreme Court is saying is that really only white propertied men should have rights. Because they were the only people that had rights back in 18, seven, um, 1787. Or even for that matter, I mean, even in when the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War, there was very limited rights. I mean, certainly for women, but for other populations as well. And so um, I that really worries me. And, and I think that it really is dishonest because if they were going to be, you know, accurate, with, you know, or consistent with the application of originalism and this idea that we have to look to what the laws used to be to determine what they are today. I mean, then why are why can't a state ban AK-47s? Because there were no AK-47s in 1787. Uh, and so how do you interpret the Second Amendment to protect the right to have an AK-47? So well, you I was going to say you, 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 you're raising really, in my view, a really fundamental point that um, if American democracy is this dynamic, ever-changing process, um, it's difficult to be hamstrung to a strict construction or originalist viewpoint offering the, it sort of assumes the founding generation had their act together when they clearly couldn't even agree on slavery. Yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, 
and and I think the other point that you make, I think it's a really sound one, is that there are very few of us, if we knew everything about the 18th century or early 19th century, would say, oh, yeah, they really had their act together. Let's go back <laughs> to that time period. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really scary. And actually, I'm very thankful for Justice Katanji Jackson Brown on the Supreme Court, because I think she in particular in her dissents, is doing a really good job of sort of calling out the originalism that the majority is using as being a very cherry-picked, a very limited originalism that's very inconsistent. First of all, I mean, just looking at Dobbs, Alito looks to one particular person commenting on abortion, um, uh, I think it was Nathan Hale, and treats that as if that was the position of everybody at the time and doesn't actually honestly look at the variety of legal approaches to abortion back then. I mean, in fact, common law that we got from Europe, from England at the founding of this country treated abortion as legal before quickening. It was not considered illegal before quickening. And quickening is the point at which a pregnant person can feel a fetus move inside of them, which is usually at about six months, five or six months in the first pregnancy, at least. And so, um, and that is, of course, determined by the pregnant person. And so for him to ignore that strong legal precedent um, and the voluminous history, I mean, historians filed an amicus curiae brief in that case explaining this history in detail rather than looking at that as you say that the the differences of opinion they just cherry-picked one guy who whose views didn't determine the law and said well he thought it was a bad thing so therefore today we can't have it we can't have abortion and to me that's a really dangerous precedent because it is not based in fact and it's not based in a consistent application of principles to determine our rights. I'm so glad you mentioned the Dobbs opinion by Justice Alito, because that was my next question. <laughs> uh, you know, he also offered in, in, in Dobbs that abortion was not deeply rooted in the nation's history. I find that to be just a fascinating statement um, that sort of, you know, when you look at that notion of what's deeply rooted. So in the reality of American history, couldn't one have made a similar argument about the abolition of slavery or women's suffrage or LGBT equality or interracial marriage, any array of issues that were not deeply rooted in American history until it was? So yes. I guess my question to you, is there a, a, a historical timeline that ascertains what's deeply rooted? Um, it's 50 years. Um, mm. enough to be deep. When, when, when are we deeply rooted in American history? I guess is my question to you. Yeah, I mean, clearly 50 years is not enough because Roe was in 73 and the, it had been the precedent of the land for 50 years and the court sort of summarily just overturned Roe. They're not looking to 50 years ago. They're looking to 250 years ago. I mean, they're looking either to the point at which the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were adopted in the late uh, 18th century, or they're looking to the period right after the Civil War when the 14th Amendment was passed. And they're saying, you know, what did the framers um, intend? And what was the legal environment at the time that they passed that 
that would have, you know, that would inform us about what they intended. So, you know, it's, it's not, you know, for something like the women's right to vote, I mean, the constitution was amended in 1920 with the 19th amendment to get to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex for voting. So I don't think that, uh, you know, and, and so if there was a state law that helped women vote, um, you know, you could argue that the, you know, the, tw- 19th Amendment protected that right to vote. However, I think that what somebody like Alito could do is look back and say, well, was was there a law like this that protected women's rights to vote? And did it do more than what the 20th Amendment, excuse me, the uh, the 19th Amendment was intended to do? So I really think it's it's quite a flexible standard that a judge who was determined could use to come to any conclusion that he wanted to come to. Um. I mean, if we if we follow that thread, um, what prohibits individuals uh, from concerns that other civil liberties uh, attained in the last century might also not be considered deeply rooted? Why wouldn't interracial marriage not be considered deeply rooted? Why wouldn't marriage equality not be considered deeply rooted or voting? not considered deeply rooted or prohibit that if, if, we're, if we're going to go down that if we're going to go down that road yeah well um clarence thomas in his concurrence in dobbs opens this can of worms he explicitly says what the majority doesn't say but follows logically from the majority's reasoning thomas explicitly says that he thinks the court should reconsider a whole range of cases that established rights under the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment, like um, Obergefell, which was the case that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States, like Griswold versus Connecticut, which legalized contraception in 1965, um, where the Supreme Court sort of really developed this idea of a right to privacy connected to liberty to not have the government interfere with a a married couple's use of contraception. Connecticut banned married couples from using contraception at the time. And so, you know, Thomas explicitly says, let's go back and overturn these things. And so these are rights that the court has interpreted the Constitution to protect, where the Constitution doesn't explicitly protect these rights, but the court has interpreted the word liberty to protect those rights. As far as voting rights, I mean, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, so that, um, you know, that, of course, has been um, eroded by the Supreme Court in the Shelby decision and more recently in more recent decisions, although the court in the last session, there was a lot of people worried that in their last last summer that the court was going to finally entirely kill off the Voting Rights Act, which they didn't because surprisingly Roberts switched sides to uphold it, at least for now. But I think there's real concern that um, the court is going to eliminate any right that has been developed in recent history since the mid-1950s, anything that the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement or the LGBT rights movement has pushed for to be covered by the Equal Protection Clause or the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, that all of those are uh, subject to being overturned along the reasoning of Dobbs. And, you know, I think that is very interestingly, Thomas did not mention 
Loving versus Virginia, which is the I was going to bring that up. I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, that's the Supreme Court case that banned people of different races from marrying. That was a 1967 case, and that was very important precedent for Obergefell, which is the decision that said that people of the same sex could marry. And, you know, it's it's sort of ironic that he didn't mention that because he is, in fact, himself in an interracial marriage. And I'm sure that's why he didn't mention it. But his reasoning would absolutely undermine that decision. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that people of different races can get married. It's only by virtue of the court interpreting the Liberty Clause to say that the state, you know, that people have a right to not be treated differently based on their race and that they have a fundamental right to be married. And the state can't ban certain people from being married because they don't like that they're of two different races or of the same sex. Funny funny how you let that go. I'm so glad you raised that. I was going to ask you about loving. Um, isn't when we think about the abortion debate, it, it, it and this is in my view, it violates a, a, a fundamental tenet of constitutional adherence in this in this sense. Roe, in my view, is less about abortion, though it's always talked about in terms of an abortion, but it's less about abortion as it is a case about privacy, per the case you mentioned earlier, Griswold v. Connecticut. Isn't it dangerous when we try to align the Constitution with specific issues? I'm thinking prohibition, or, you know, or go on. You know, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, in fact, what Roe did was say, you know, it interpreted the word liberty to include the right not to have the government interfere in your personal decisions around procreation whether to have a child or not to have a child. So I agree. It's really not a case about abortion. It's a case about liberty. And what I find the current Supreme Court is constantly doing is rather than looking at the principle, it looks at a specific issue and says, well, the Constitution says nothing about Abortion. I mean, another example is Lawrence versus Texas, which was the 2003 case that struck down the Texas anti-sodomy law. And basically what that decision was about is does the government get to determine what kind of sex you have with other consenting adults? Do they get to say no anal sex, no oral sex, only missionary position? And I think most people would agree that Lawrence was a good decision. And by the way, that's another decision that uh, Thomas said we should revisit. But, you know, there's a, there is a long history of states banning fornication. What's fornication? Sex outside of marriage. There's a long history of states banning sodomy, anal and oral sex. And, you know, we got to a point in this country where we felt like <clears throat> it's not really the government's business. I mean, I think at the to some degree, you know, it was informed by religious beliefs or by moral beliefs. But I think that as a country, liberty includes the liberty to be able to have your own religious and moral beliefs about sex and make your own decisions about sex, as long as you're not harming other people. Obviously, if you're harming other people, that's a different thing. But if it's consensual adult sex, the government doesn't really get to be the umpire. The government should step aside and give us our liberty. 
And so, you know, in Lawrence, I remember, I forget who it was, it was probably Scalia wrote a ranting dissent saying, the Constitution says nothing about oral sex. It doesn't provide the right to oral sex. The founders of this country weren't concerned about oral sex. They weren't thinking about oral sex. I mean, they may have been, but, but he said, you know, the point is, is that that was not what they were talking about. And that's just a very simple argument that completely evades the principle, which is the government should keep its nose out of our bedrooms. And I really think that, you know, most Americans, hopefully all Americans, don't really want a menage a trois with the government. They don't really want the government in there refereeing what positions they can take, what contraception they can use, who they can be in the bedroom with. And, and again, I'm using this as an example of, of how, you know, a, a sort of anti-civil rights strategy is rather than focusing on the principle to kind of break it down into some specific issue and then say, oh, the Constitution doesn't protect that specific thing. Yet they won't do that on something like gun rights, right? I mean, you know, the framers never said anything about AK-47. So AK-47s aren't protected by the Second Amendment if you use an originalist interpretation consistently. Yet when you're talking about light rights they like, the conservatives on the Supreme Court go up to the principal level, the big broad level, and say the government, you know, should not infringe the right of the citizens to have, you know, to have guns. And they're not going to say, well, AK-47s or, you know, I mean, if you're going to be consistent, what the Second Amendment means is everybody has the right to a single loading um, muzzle, you know, rifle, which is the only thing that was around in, when the Second Amendment was adopted, right? I don't know right. guns that well, so I might be calling it the wrong thing. No. But the point being is they don't get specific when it's rights they like. They only get specific when it's rights they don't like. When it's when it's things like AK-47s, they're like, oh, the general principle is the government can't take away our right to defend ourselves. Does that make sense? I yeah, no, I always tell my I always tell my students when talking about the Heller versus DC decision. I, I tell them, I always have them read that decision because you see you see um Justice Scalia in particular doing some unoriginalist like yeah. rationale to justify supporting um gun rights. Yeah. Um one of the aspects that struck me specific to the uh abortion debate is that it's easier, in my view, to be pro-birth than it is to be pro-life. Yeah. And, and wouldn't the, and if you were going to be pro-life, wouldn't it also dictate greater access to birth control, support foster care, support a, uh, a, adoption care and child care subsidies for low-income women, paid family leave, et cetera? So how was the current debate, in my view, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, not an attempt to have morality on the cheap? Yeah, I think that it is striking that all the states that are banning abortion are also the states that have the highest maternal mortality rates, have the highest infant mortality rates, have the highest rates of child poverty, are the states that uh, have snatched back social safety net programs like uh, SNAP benefits or, um, you know, other things that would actually help young mothers care for the children they've given birth to. It's striking to me um, how unsupportive of parenting uh, and of mothering these people that profess to be 
pro-life are. And, you know, they say, well, we should do it through charities, through individual giving. We shouldn't have the government give handouts, right? Yet, you know, their charity is, first of all, way too limited to support the people that need it, even now, much less if a bunch of people were forced to give birth against their will. But second of all, it's often conditioned on religious requirements and other kinds of burdensome restrictions that, you know, a low income mother of four can't go to Bible class for three hours to get a box of diapers, you know? And so it's very, to me, hypocritical. And and I completely agree with your characterization that they are pro-forced birth, but they are not pro-life. They are not pro-child. I've often said that we live in one of the most child-hostile countries in the entire world. Just look at the number of children killed by gun violence, yet we do nothing about guns. Look at the high child hunger rate, yet we cut SNAP benefits. Uh, uh, look at the, uh, I could just go on and on and on. You, you, I, in my class, I teach a gender law and policy class at Smith College. And when I'm teaching about paid parental leave policies in the United States, which there are very few of, and I compare the United States to the rest of the world, it's shocking. It's truly shocking. All the United States has is 10 weeks of unpaid leave. And then a few states have passed paid parental leave, primarily Democratic states, not the Republican states that are banning abortion. And so somebody's forced to have a child and they have to be back on the job within days. And many countries around the world support months of paid parental leave at 80, 90% of the salary that the person had been making. France, it's like three years of paid parental leave. Many European nations have very generous paid leave policies. And it's not just for the person who gave birth. It's also for the other parent. The father or other parent can take time off from work and still have their income. And, you know, the fact of the matter is unpaid leave doesn't do much for many people because most people can't afford unpaid leave. If you're working a minimum wage job and you have a child and you can barely make rent, you can't take 10 weeks off with no pay. You'll be thrown out. And then you'll you'll have your child taken and put in the foster care system. You know, it, it's we we create a real catch 22 for parents in this country. And not only do we not have paid parental leave, we don't have nearly enough child care sub- subsidies. And Congress just let the pandemic era childcare subsidies labs. And I I do the same thing in my class with childcare. I compare US subsidies to subsidies that are given by countries around the world. And, you know, I, I talk about what percentage of children are covered and how much of the cost of care is covered. And the US is is really pathetic. I mean, we have, some states have pre-K and some states have Head Start. And and there's limited um, help for people to care for infants. But, you know, here in Massachusetts, it costs more to keep a kid in childcare for a year than it costs to send a kid to UMass Amherst College. It's like over $20,000 a year to put a kid in childcare. And we've got a childcare crisis in this country. And Democrats repeatedly try to get 
Congress to deal with this issue and Republicans to deal with this issue. With Biden, it was the Build Back Better plan. And in that, he had paid parental leave. Um, I forget how many weeks, but he, he had required paid parental leave and he had generous childcare subsidies and new standards for childcare facilities to make sure that when kids are in care, they're safe and well cared for. And at every step of the way, the Republicans blocked that. And, you know, so he, they ended up passing the Inflation Reduction Act, but they didn't have any of the pro-child measures that are absolutely so critical for young parents and, and especially critical in light of Dobbs now that potentially, and I this is not clear to me, a lot more people are going to be forced to give birth against their will. Mm. And remember, 75% of people seeking abortion are low income. So those people already, and most of them already have children. Then they have one more child and they still don't have enough money to feed them. And and by the way, I'll also say this is a completely racialized problem. Um, certainly there are plenty of low-income white people who, who are harmed by these programs, but disproportionately low-income people in the United States and low-income children are children of color. And if you look at those statistics, it's absolutely shocking. The percentage of Black children and Latinx children in the United States who are growing up in poverty. And during the COVID pandemic, when these child um, support programs went into effect, that poverty let rate dropped substantially. And then as soon as those measures uh, ended, the poverty rate went right back up. And so I absolutely agree with you that that the people that are opposing abortion and who also oppose policies to help new mothers care for their children and, and help children, um, they're not pro-life. When you, given your area of expertise, what's missing in this political cacophony um, around around uh, abortion rights and right to life and how you want to find it? Um, given your expertise, what what are we missing from the debate? What, what, what would you like to see lifted up that's not lifted up if there's something? Well, um, you know, I, I think, um, let me just, I mean, I do think what I was saying earlier about how harmful abortion bans are for people that carry pregnancies to term, because I think it's very easy to say, well, I'm not going to have an abortion, so that doesn't affect me, or I can just go get an abortion. It's not going to affect me. I think a lot of wealthier people don't care that much because they're like, well, I can always get it. I can use my money to go to another state or I can get my doctor, my private doctor who I'm paying to do an exception. I think this is, is an absolutely immoral position that actually makes me really angry. But I hear that. I hear that. And I think what those people need to know is that if you are, you know, eight weeks pregnant and all of a sudden you have shooting pains in your abdomen and you need to be rushed to an emergency room and get an abortion because you have an ectopic pregnancy, there's no time to travel to another state. And you could be denied abortion. This could kill you. It could kill your daughter, your wife, your sister. And, you know, and that's just one example. I mean, the other example is the person who's 25 weeks pregnant and all the, and it's diagnosed that the fetus will not survive that it's missing a brain that it's that it has a major um defect incompatible with life yet your state forces you to continue to gestate that fetus because there's still a heartbeat 
And so for another 15 weeks, you have to have your dying child in your womb. And by the way, that harms your health. But you may not be able to access an abortion because, for instance, in Texas, the exception for harm to life is so vague that doctors are scared because so much is at stake. They could lose their license. They could end up in jail. They could be bankrupted. And, you know, many of the, like the eight women who are the plaintiffs in that Texas case that I told you about, they were pro-life. They weren't anti-abortion. They weren't um, pro-choice. They or or they just didn't care about it. They didn't think about it. And I guess I would just want to say to all those people that said this issue is not going to affect you. I mean, the fact of the matter is one in three women will get an abortion in their life. But even aside from that, not about 85 to 90 percent of women give birth at some point in their life and they are at danger by these laws. And 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 not just a danger that you can you know, like, oh, OK, well, I'll travel to get this you know procedure out of state. Sometimes there's no time to travel out of state and you still can't get a doctor to agree to do it. I, I just quite frankly would not give become pregnant in a state that had an abortion ban. And like I have a niece from South Carolina and I have strongly you know, I've said, you know, if you get to the point where you get married and have and want to have a child, you should not live in a state like South Carolina because it would be dangerous. And and that's really sad and scary in this day and age that that we've gotten to that point where we devalue the lives of women and pregnant people so much that we don't care about their health. Apparently, I really think it's become a uh, I mean, really. I think a lot of the people, particularly the politicians that vote against abortion rights, actually don't care that much about abortion. I mean, look at Donald Trump. He's now finally sort of backtracking on that issue. But, you know, I think it's that it was a very effective tool of political mobilization. And it's been interesting to me to see post Dobbs, the sort of, you know, dog that caught the car situation going on with the Republican Party, especially with all these ballot measures, where they just don't know how to talk about abortion anymore because it's such an unpopular position to call for bans. Yet that's been a hugely mobilizing issue for them when Roe was in place. And so they're really, they're no longer talking about abortion bans. They're called, talking about abortion limits. That You know, there are interesting things that they're doing, but um, I think that they... Um, you know, and now they're jumping ship and and going on to the anti-LGBTQ ship, right, with the attacks on transgender people. And that's really becoming more of the focus and the mobilizing force that they're using. But I, I think they're in a dilemma because they're they will not let go of their really unpopular position. And it's endangering the lives, the health and the rights of many, many Americans in this country. So, so well, in your view, uh abortion uh, be front and center in 2024? Absolutely. And the polling data shows that. So I will, let me talk a little bit about the polling data. So um, recent data has shown that abortion is a powerful mobilizing force for Democrats, Democrats and independents especially independent women, younger women, voters who support abortion rights, college-educated women, Latinas and Black voters, and voters aged 30 to 39 in the 2024 elections. So this was like detailed polling that was looking at like what 
issues actually motivate people to go to the polls. And what it's showing is that um, abortion rights supporters are much more motivated to go to the polls than people who oppose abortion. And if you combine abortion with the Equal Rights Amendment, which, you know, women's equality, the data is really quite striking. So voters overwhelmingly expressed, um, let's see, support for the Equal Rights Amendment, seven in 10 voters, um, with a strong majority, 57% strongly supporting the ERA, compared to 12% who oppose the ERA. So if you combine abortion support with ERA support and ask voters, will these issues, will these two issues motivate you to get to the polls in 2024? Overwhelmingly, they will. And so, you know, we've seen this. It's it's interesting. After the, you know, after Dobbs in, in the run-up to the 22 elections, all of the pollsters were saying, oh, it's inflation. It's inflation. That's the real motivator. And the polling that we did in the women's movement, and and this is um, the poll that I just talked about, was a poll from um, Lakes, um, um, I'm not finding it, but I'll, I'll just go on. But it's a poll commissioned by Ms. Magazine and the Feminist Foundation, Feminist Majority Foundation, um, with a reputable polling organization. What they found was that the number one issue for women was abortion and particularly for young people and young women. That was a major mobilizer. And I, that's exactly what we saw in 2022. I think that's what we saw in 2023 as well. Those were the issues. It was not only the case in the Ohio ballot referendum. It was also a motivating issue in Virginia, which flipped the legislature to Democrat. Because, you know, Glenn Youngkin is the governor. He's anti-abortion Republican governor, and he was threatening to ban abortion in the state. And that really motivated people to come out and vote for Democrats in the legislature. Democrats got both houses in Virginia. It also motivated the governor's election in Kentucky. Kentucky voters reelected the Democrat, Andrew Bashir against a challenge by the former attorney general, um, Daniel Cameron, who is a very vocal anti-abortion opponent. And so, you know, if the abortion issue will help get a Democratic governor elect reelected in Kentucky, uh, you know, it's a very important issue. And, and I think it will absolutely be an issue. You know, these stories of women suffering from these abortion bans will keep coming and they will be used. I mean, it was striking the stories that were used in the Ohio referendum. A young woman told the story of being raped by her father, her stepfather, when she was 12 and becoming pregnant. And she did a, about a minute and a half PSA that was widely played throughout Ohio talking about what it would what it what it would have meant to her if she had had to carry that pregnancy to term at age 12. And I think that's just a very compelling message to people. Women are speaking out about the harms um you know when they're trying to carry pregnancies to term and and they can't get the medical care they need. Those stories really reach the majority, the vast majority of the electorate and motivate them to vote against people supporting these kinds of abortion bans. Professor Kerry Baker, I want to thank you so much uh, for sharing your wise and passionate um, observations. And um, oh, it's great to have you back on the Public Morality. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be here. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. 
You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.